This is episode 54 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 54 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the Center. In this episode, we chat with Todd Harch, a Notre Dame Vita Institute alumnus and professor in the Department of History, Philosophy, and Religious Studies at Eastern Kentucky University. Todd's new book, A Time to Build Anew, How to Find the True, Good, and Beautiful in America, explores models of men and women who are signs of hope in these challenging times. Let's head into the chat room for this delightful conversation. Well, Todd, thank you so much for virtually coming and being a guest here on the the podcast. It's great to be on the podcast. I'm, I'm a fan. I think I've listened to almost every episode. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Kind of those sorts of things. Well, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, early in life in the Episcopal Church. I had a conversion to evangelical Protestantism um, in high school. Went off to Yale University, got very involved in InterVarsity, which is a interdenominational uh, fellowship group sure. and, and worked for them for four years after college. I was a campus minister at Yale and Southern Connecticut State University. Um, and then I, I sort of got tired of that and went off to, to graduate school and studied Latin American history. So that's what I've been doing ever since. Wow. What did you study in Latin American history? Kind of what, what did you focus on? Well, when I was as uh, a campus minister, I went on a mission trip to Latin America, to Mexico, and I was really intrigued by the growth of Protestantism. Um, I remember being in a, a, a Mayan village in Mexico, and there was a Protestant church, a Presbyterian church that had a meeting every single night, and then there was a Catholic church that was literally falling apart. I mean, there were trees growing through it. And I just, that was so different from what I thought about Latin America Right. That I, I just started asking questions, even before I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, like, well, what is, what is happening here? How did Protestantism grow so fast? And so that was the, the question in the back of my mind when I went to graduate school was, how can we make sense of this growth of Protestantism in a Catholic area? And I was asking that question as a Protestant. Okay. Um, now I'm on the other <laughs> side of that, but it's still, it's still a question in my mind. Sure, sure. So where do you teach now, and, and what kind of remain your academic interests? So I've been teaching at Eastern Kentucky University uh, in the history department for the past 18 years, and um, it's a master's level school, so I don't get to do all the uh, research or specialized teaching uh, that you might do at a place like Notre Dame. So I usually teach three U.S. history surveys per semester plus one upper-level class. And that upper-level class is usually a Latin American history or the history of Christianity in, in some sense. Well, now, how did you then first come to encounter the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture, or when you encountered us, the Center for Ethics and Culture? 
Yeah, so so about uh, 15 years ago, I was doing a research project at Notre Dame using the, uh, the Hesburgh Library and the archives, uh, writing about Ivan Illich, who was a radical social activist, a Catholic priest. And um, I just had a great time being here and uh, being there, I should say, or <laughs> <laughs> here virtually. Yeah. Um, and as a Protestant, I realized that there was something different about Notre Dame. It was like a, a sacred geography, uh, mm. a sacred landscape. Uh, and by that, I mean, I'd go around a corner and there would be a statue of the Virgin Mary or some other saint, or and I'd be exploring some building and there'd be a chapel. Then I realized there's a chapel in almost every building. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have the dome and Our Lady over the university. Uh, and so I was very intrigued by that. Um, and so that was in the back of my mind. Then I converted to Catholicism about 10 years ago, and I needed, um, I don't know, fellowship, encouragement, especially I needed, um, I, I needed uh, like sort of fellowship with other Catholic uh, thinkers, uh, teachers, and so forth. And so I was looking for conferences, and I realized that the, the Nicholas Center had this fall conference. So I started coming to that. And then I also attended a Vita Institute sure. a few years ago, and I've kept coming to the fall conference. And it's been really encouraging for me because, you know, in my diocese of Lexington, there's no seminary. There's no Catholic college. There's no Catholic university. Uh, there's actually very few Catholics. <laughs> right. um, and so it's not like there is a big Catholic intellectual conversation going on. And Notre Dame provides that for me. Uh, and the center in particular. So that fall conference has become for me really one of the highlights of my year, you know, a chance. I almost think of it as like Catholic Disneyland uh, <laughs> for me to get to come up to Notre Dame and, you know, go to all these uh, talks and, you know, give a paper myself and meet professors and students from all over the country. So, so for me, it's really become one of the highlights of my year. That's awesome. The phrase Catholic Disneyland is one that I used before I came to Notre Dame, too. So I definitely know what you mean there. So you have a brand new book out, and it's called A Time to Build a New. So what is the premise behind your book? About five years ago, Ken, I was discouraged with both America and the church. And I was tempted to write a book of denunciations, criticisms, and, you know, all that's wrong with sure, the sure. world, America, and the church. But I'm glad I didn't do that. Uh, and I, I'm not exactly sure how, but I thought, why not take the other tack? Why not go for, you know, what's good and true and right? And especially because I, I just realized, you know, if I if I issued my denunciations, you know, people might agree or they might not. But, you know, what would that change? Um, and I, I just came to think, what, what do we need now? We need like examples and models. We need models of, of how to do things right. And uh, I think I don't really think it's a time now for denunciations and criticism. You know, I think. We know what's wrong. We, you know, we, if you and I sat down, we could come up with that list of 100 things. Um, but, but what would that solve? I, I thought it was much better to um, think, you know, who are some people, some groups who've done it right and show people how that's done to inspire them to do something similar themselves. Sure. The, um, of course, 
I'm reading the book and I'm thinking this echoes a number of other books that kind of are in the area, but not doing, not taking the exact same tech you are. But one can't not think of the Benedict Option by Rod Dreher or, or even the brand new book, Sarab Amari's brand new book, which takes 12 questions and looks at individual thinkers who address these questions about, about tradition and the power of tradition. And so I'm reading your book and I'm like, this is in those veins, but you regularly in there even say, you know, my point is to be positive and not to dwell upon the negative. You, you, you say that multiple times in the book, but who's the audience then? Who, who are you writing it for? I'm writing it for people like me who might be tempted to despair, Catholics and other people of goodwill in particular. Um, and especially for, I don't know if you read a book by Jody Bottom um, a few years ago, I'm forgetting the title, but it was basically about um, how America has lost its way, and 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 Catholics in particular are sort of, you know, they've read themselves into the church, or they've 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 gone back to tradition, but they're just not sure of what to do. Sure. And so that's the person I'm thinking of. Like, I know something's wrong. I know things could be better, but what should I do? And so my hope is that that person will look at some of these stories and say, yeah, I could do something like that. Hopefully not exactly the same. Hopefully, you know, right. we all have different gifts and callings. And so the idea is, you know, God might have put something specific on your plate. It might be just, you know, joining one of the organizations I talk about, but it might be starting a new one. Yeah. It might be creating a great work of art. It might be writing the great Catholic novel. I'm not sure what it will be, but my hope is this can just sort of spur people on to the next step. In many ways, it's like the what we say about the saints. God raises up the saints, you know, the church needs for that very moment. Exactly. And so in one of the chapters, I talk about the Sisters of Life. Uh, and their their founder, Cardinal O'Connor, says, you know, at every um, era in the church, God raises up the religious orders that that era needs. And, you know, I, I, I really think that's true. Um, and so I see the Sisters of Life as one of those uh, that has been raised up by God. But I can't believe that's it. Right. You know, my my hope is that's that's one of my hopes is there'll be new religious orders that spring up. You know, we have a, a decaying culture, a needy church. Always throughout history, there have been these new orders. You know, think about the Franciscans and the Dominicans in the Middle Ages. Think about the Sisters of Life today. What's next? I hope I hope we'll see some new ones. Yeah. Well, now, you, you've made reference there. You have uh, in the book seven different individuals and organizations and uh, initiatives that you highlight. How did you come to choose these particular seven? Was there a was there an overall message, or were these seven favorites, or did you write out a list and throw darts? How did it work? Well, at first, I was going to be very philosophical, and I was going to focus on the true, the good, and the beautiful, and have two or three that were about the truth, and two or three that are about the good and the beautiful. After I was writing for a while, I realized, you know what? All of these are true, good, and beautiful. <laughs> Sure. Right. And because, you know, the the transcendentals, um, you can't have one without the others. Right, right. <laughs> and so uh, I had to give up that premise. Um, and then I just, there were organizations and people I was already interested in. It was more a process of, of uh, whittling it down a little bit. 
I just realized, you know, I can't write 20 chapters. <laughs> right. Maybe I'll do five, six, seven. I settled on seven. Yeah. And some of those, as you've you've made reference, uh, the Sisters of Life, the Dominicans of the Province of St. Joseph, Franciscan University of Steubenville, Joe Riley, and the uh, revival of the um, city of Charleston, South Carolina, uh, the Notre Dame School of Architecture. So, you know, you've thrown a little bone here to, uh, to Our Lady's University. I appreciate that. But I noticed in reading these that uh, a few of them are stories of converts who themselves were seduced either by beauty or by truth. As a convert yourself, did you take particular interest in those stories? Is that why? I mean, how did you learn about, for example, Frederick Hart, the, the sculptor? I had had him in the back of my mind for a while. I think I read his obituary uh, when he died, um, even before I was Catholic. And I was interested in this idea of a traditional sculptor who got no real acclaim during his own life. Um, Tom Wolfe, the the writer was a friend and um, advocate of his. And so I remembered that it just stuck in my mind. So I just, you know, when I came to the book, I thought, he's what I'm talking about. Here's a guy who did something totally against the grain. You know, when, when, when sculptors were trying to be transgressive and striking and novel, he just said, I'm trying to be beautiful and meaningful. And so I just, I, I remembered that. And he was a convert. Um, that wasn't really what led me to him. Um, and, and, and really, I wasn't looking for converts. I was just looking for people who were doing something strong and powerful that had a good story. Yeah, yeah. Now, at least one of these, the Integrated Humanities Program at the University of Kansas, kind of flared really brightly and then went away, um, kind of was overcome by the, by the forces of decay that you mentioned before, because it existed only between 1970 and 79, and yet has had an outsized impact, which you, you draw multiple times. Tell us a little bit about that, because I was interested reading that, knowing that you, you yourself work at a state institution, and yet it had this incredible influence on the Catholic world. Yeah, so I, yeah, that's one of the reasons I love the story, obviously, is because I've been teaching at a, a public institution, state institution for 18 years. And, and these three men, they were three scholars who taught at University of Kansas. So I loved what they did. And if, you, if people don't know the story, I'll, I'll tell it briefly, but they started this basically a great books program at University of Kansas that was incredibly successful and has led to hundreds of conversions to Catholicism, many vocations to the priesthood and religious life. It, it wasn't really magic. They just, they, they had a good relationship with each other and they taught with clarity and love and students responded. Uh, but then it was shut down. It was considered uh, too, um, I think they were considered too sincere and their students were considered too accepting of what they were teaching, mm, wow. <laughs> which is strange. But one of my points in the book is that it's okay that they were shut down. You know, that, that we shouldn't only take as models people and institutions who've enjoyed worldly success, right? You can't say, you know, I'm only going to do this if I'm guaranteed of it lasting forever because nothing will last forever and many things will fail and much better to try and fail than not to try at all. 
And so the great lesson of the uh, Integrated Humanities Program for me is that in a worldly sense, they failed. I mean, it, it lasted less than a decade. But from a kingdom perspective, it was an incredible success, right? To have hundreds of conversions at a secular university, to have people going becoming monks in France, and then the way I conclude the book is talking about some of those monks come back and have started uh, Clear Creek Abbey in the United States. So we never know exactly how things are going to work out. And because things fail from a worldly perspective, is not is not failure in a kingdom perspective. Yeah. Wow. Well, you're hinting at kind of a lesson, kind of an overarching lesson that you you drew from that experience. But are there other overarching connections or themes that you discovered while you were researching and, and writing your book? Well, I've I've mentioned one a little bit before. One was the incredible. Um, goodness of religious orders that I, I wasn't seeking to write a book about religious orders. Um, and honestly, they haven't been a big part of my own life, you know, growing up as a Protestant and living in Kentucky. Yeah, I can go months, years without meeting anybody in a religious order. But just many of these things that I settle upon had some connection to a religious order. So Sisters of Life and the Dominicans are religious orders. Franciscan University was started by or is, is run by one. Um, Notre Dame, of course, um, is is run by one. And so religious orders just have an outsized impact, even in a country like the United States that's not predominantly Catholic and where religious orders have been in decline. So that's one of the reasons why I'm so hopeful that we'll see new religious orders in our lifetime, is just looking at the incredible good that they've done. So that, that's one thing. Um, and another is about institutions, and there's a real balancing act in institutions, and that is there is a danger in institutions that this, they just become bloated. You know, you get all that layers of administration and bureaucracy, and they can even become counterproductive. That's my Ivan Illich speaking there. <laughs> um, but institutions are still great. You know, you and I both work for institutions, and they they are the way to continue something good through time. And one of the things that I just loved seeing in two of these stories in particular, Franciscan University and the Notre Dame School of Architecture, was how an institution could be revitalized, right? That, that Notre Dame School of Architecture was in danger of losing accreditation. Franciscan University was about to collapse. I mean, they were literally putting their buildings uh, for sale because they had no students. And both of those institutions were saved, right? So it is possible to save an institution and to reorient it and renew it. And when that happens, incredibly good things can come from it. So, you know, think about Franciscan University today. There are so many influential um, graduates of that tiny institution. They're, they're all over the United States and the world doing great things. And that institution almost faded. It, it took really one man, uh, Father Scanlon, who became the president, a job he didn't want. <laughs> and he just programmatically and prayerfully uh, instituted some great changes and, and saved it. Yeah, that truly is kind of a hopeful message, right? The, uh, the idea also that uh, a reformation, in a way, uh, within the institution can 
reorient it and rededicate it to its to its mission or in some cases as you were mentioning like the Notre Dame School of Architecture really embracing a countercultural message within its own within its own discipline right i mean this was moving from standard modernism modernist architecture to classicism in in a way that truly makes it a leader in in a movement that has now caught fire among others as well yeah it's um when uh, Thomas Gordon Smith was this um, great architect who took over Notre Dame School of Architecture uh, in 1989, and uh, what he was trying to do hadn't been done anywhere. I think every single school of architecture in the United States uh, embraced some version of modernism. And the idea that you could have a whole school devoted to classical architecture was seen as you know ludicrous. Like, can that even happen? But it could happen. And now Notre Dame School of Architecture is just incredibly influential and unique. And its graduates are all over the country and the world. And they're just, they're doing great things. And that was one of the fun things for me was looking to see what they're doing. So, you know, Philip Bess, the professor there, he saved Fenway Park. Right. I mean, what, what, what's greater than that? <laughs> what's greater than that? I can't wait to actually go to a baseball game with Phil Bess. He's, he's of course, a great friend of the center as well. So, yeah. There's a kind of a subtitle to your book that is interesting to me, um, How to Find the True Good and Beautiful in America. Tell me a little bit about the inclusion of in America there. Well, I, I, I'm worried about America. And um, I could write a book like this about Mexico, which is an area that I study, or I could write about Europe. But I'm an American. And uh, I, I want America uh, to embrace the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so I wanted some American stories. And I, it, it is a departure for me. I mean, I, all my books before this have been about Latin America. That's my specialty. So um, I, I did this really as a labor of love uh, for this country, for the church in this country. Uh, and what I'm hoping is that you know, like I said at the beginning, I, I didn't want to write a list of 100 things that are wrong. I wanted to find some good examples to inspire people to do more good. Wonderful. Well, are there or were there any other hopeful organizations or individuals that you considered but didn't make the cut? Or maybe for volume two? You know, it's so sad, Ken. There were no other institutions or individuals. <laughs> no, I... Uh, I I had several that were in mind. For instance, Thomas Aquinas College uh, on the West Coast was one. Um, the novelist Michael O'Brien, but sure. he's Canadian. So <laughs> couldn't have that. He's the uh, um, author of like Father Elijah and others. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Clear Creek Abbey, I was thinking of doing a whole chapter, but that ended up being sort of my coda, the sort of consummation of uh, two or three other chapters coming together in that new uh, monastery. Um, I was thinking of doing the Missionaries of Charity, but I ended up deciding to do a newer, an American order doing the Sisters of Life. So there, there's plenty. I mean, I, if, I, I'm already thinking of doing volume two. Sure. Time to keep building. Or <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, can, we can workshop the title, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's like... Um, you know, James Matthew Wilson, who you recently had on the on the podcast, uh, he's starting a new MFA program. Right. That's a, that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Uh, it'd be fun to talk about him starting that up sure. and, and beginning the process. 
Well, Todd, this is, it's really a great book and, um, I enjoyed, I enjoyed reading it and, and especially, and you couldn't have known this, but there are multiple connection points with the university, both, you know, at Notre Dame and the Center for Ethics and Culture. As you note in your book, the center awarded the Notre Dame Evangelium Vitae Medal to the Sisters of Life in 2013. Um, uh, Father Dominic Legg, I grew up with uh, at my home parish in St. Philomena, Des Moines, Washington, and lots of interesting kind of intersection points. And that's something that I think is is kind of interesting, too. You mentioned the center having been a source of community and fellowship for you, even remotely. I'm reading each of these chapters and thinking about the intersection of the people involved in the institutions and how being siloed is very anti-Catholic, you know, in a way. It's like, oh, we're going to do our own thing right here when it's the community and the true sense of being members of the body of Christ and part of a universal church are where we truly find our great strength and encouragement among one another. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I just, uh, to give a further example, um, I was interviewing Father Innocent Smith, um, who is a Notre Dame grad and is now a Dominican. And so I was asking him about the Dominicans, but then he was saying, well, what else are you going to write about? And and I was talking about, you know, beauty. And so he, we got into talking about his father and the School of Architecture. And really, that's how I got into the School of Architecture was through a Dominican whose father was the one who really revitalized it. So there are all these interconnections. Um, and I, I, I realized also that the center has connections to many of these. Yeah, so. it's a lot of fun. Well, we look forward to welcoming you back, hopefully here in the fall for our fall conference, when we'll be back together in, in hopefully the post-COVID times. But, uh, but thank you for writing this book, too. Oh, it was, it was, I mean, I've never written a book like this. And I think there's more of me in this book than in the other ones. Uh, so it was, it was fun. It was a real blessing for me. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Todd. Ken, it's been a pleasure. Thank you to Todd Harch. You will find links to his book, A Time to Build a New, in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.